Jewish authorities arrested Jesus. And they were taking him to the house of the high priest. Peter and John decided to follow. Peter was following at a distance when Peter and John got to the high priest's house. There was a courtyard associated with that house, and there was a gate. And because John, John was known to the high priest. There was a relationship. They knew who John was. And so John was able to go into the courtyard with Jesus. But Peter was not known by the high priest, and he was not able to go in. He was standing at the gate. And when John realized what had happened, he went back to the gate and told the servant girl who was guarding the gate, hey, let Peter in. And so Peter was led into the courtyard. And it was a, a cold night, and the servants and the officers of the high priest had gotten together and kindled a fire to warm themselves. And Peter went over to the fire, trying to be inconspicuous, but to warm himself. And he sat down with the rest of them there. And there was a servant girl who, for some reason, Peter caught her eye. And she just started looking at him and just kept looking at him. And finally she says, he's one of Jesus' disciples. And Peter said, woman, I, I don't know him. After a little more time of being by the fire and warming yourself with the servants and with the officers there, another fellow came by and said, yeah, you, you're, you're one of them. And he says, no, man, I, I, don't, I don't know him. I don't know him. And then there was another hour of being outside waiting to see what's going to happen to Jesus and warming themselves by the fire when a fellow came by and he confidently said, now look, you are one of them. We know because you're a Galilean. And that was significant because Jesus was a Galilean. In fact, most of his ministry had taken place in Galilee. He was known as Jesus of Galilee. And they had heard Peter's accent when he was talking, denying the Lord. And they picked up, okay, he's a Galilean. And so it just makes sense. And Peter again, man, I don't know what you're saying. Cursing, using profanity, swearing. At that point, the rooster crowed. And Jesus turns and looks at Peter. And immediately Peter remembers just hours before. He told the Lord, I'll never deny you. I'll die before I do that. And the enormity of what he just done, the very thing that he said he would not do, comes washing over him in waves of grief. And he goes out and he weeps bitterly. That's the story, the narrative of what I think we would say was Peter's greatest failure in his life. And it's interesting, one of the things about the Bible I love so much is that it is not a book of propaganda. It's not a book of propaganda because if it were a book of propaganda, then Moses never did, did anything wrong, and Abraham would have never done anything wrong, and, and, and David would have never done anything wrong. But you know, the thing about the Bible is you see the heroes of the Bible, warts and all, good, bad, and ugly. You, you see that because it's not really about them. <laughs> it's not really about them. It, it's about this God this powerful God, and what He can do with love and grace and mercy with flawed men and women. That's, that's the story of the Bible. That's the hero. What God, through His grace and His love and His mercy, can do through flawed individuals. So there's no question. Sometimes you, you talk to brethren about some of the failures of the biblical heroes, and they get a little uncomfortable. I remember talking to a brother about Abraham, and he wanted to try to tell me that, that Abraham was fine when he told that half-truth about his sister. No, Abraham wasn't fine. <laughs> Abraham sinned. That was deceitful. And Peter's not fine here. Peter lied. Peter denied the Lord. Peter was a coward. But the Bible gives us this record. In all four of the gospel accounts, this is recorded. I want to direct your attention to Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 62. The summation I gave you was taken primarily from Luke 22, although I borrowed some things from John, John's account. Always good to read God's Word. And so let's read this account 
Luke 22, 54 through 62. Reading from the New King James Version, having arrested him, that's Jesus, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them, and a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he's a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. You know, every time I read that last couple of verses, I just, it, it's just, it's emotional. <laughs> yeah, it's emotional. I mean, how, how would it feel after your failure to have the Lord look you directly in the eye? And you know exactly what he's thinking. And you know exactly what you did. And that's exactly what we have recorded here. But what, what do we do with this story? What do we do with this narrative? Is this simply something that we use for our vacation Bible schools? This is something we use for our Bible studies. It's intellectually stimulating. It's riveting. It's good narrative. But, you know, what does it have to do with us? It has a lot to do with us. As with everything in the Scriptures. Remember Romans 15:4 says, These things that were written beforehand were written for our learning. And of course, in that context, it's talking about things from the Old Testament. But folks, that principle is no less true for things that are recorded in the New Testament. These things are written for us to learn. There are things that we're to take away. There are lessons that we are to extract from the narrative. And so I asked the question, that's the title of the sermon tonight, what can we learn from Peter's failures? What can we learn from Peter's failures? Let me suggest to you the first thing we learn from Peter's failures is this. Appreciate appreciate how easily we can fall. We need to appreciate how easily we can fall. I, I worry sometimes. I worry sometimes that because we have the sea on our chest, <laughs> we're Christians, that we just think, well, we can just see anything, hear anything, be exposed to anything, be around anything, do anything, and we'll be unscathed. Oh, no, we're, we're Christians. We've been baptized into Christ as if somehow the devil can't lay a hand on you because you're a Christian. I think we learn from Peter that we need to appreciate how easily we can fall. I want you to listen again to what Peter said just hours before denying the Lord. Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 through 35. Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 through 35. Then Jesus said to them, the apostles that is, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Hours before, doing the very thing he just said he wouldn't do. And we're not just talking about anybody. We're talking about one of the apostles. We're talking about one of the men that Jesus himself handpicked to spread the gospel. And that individual who by the biblical account, seems to have had a closer relationship to Jesus than any of the other apostles other than James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And I say that because on three different occasions in the recorded ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the raising of Jairus' daughter, the transfiguration on the mount, and the garden of Gethsemane, on those three different occasions of the twelve, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and separates them to have encouragement and spend time together. Peter can fall? Peter can fail? Peter can deny the Lord? Yeah. And if Peter can fall, guess what? We can fall. We learn that from Peter. We need to understand that. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. We need to appreciate from this narrative that all of us have the potential to fall. 
And we need to guide our lives accordingly, to be careful, to be cautious, to be wise in the decisions we make. Because we too, like Peter, in the wrong circumstance, in the wrong place, in the wrong time, can fall. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. The Bible says this, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You know what Paul has just talked about right before that conclusion? He's talked about God's people in the Old Testament. And he made this point that God wasn't pleased with many of them. How do you know that? Because their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. That's how you know God wasn't pleased. God's own people. I'm not talking about pagan nations. I'm not talking about people who knew nothing about Yahweh. God's own people lusted. God's own people engaged in idolatry. God's own people engaged in sexual immorality. God's own people complained. And Paul says, look what happened to God's people. (laughs) And so you who are now God's people under this dispensation, under this covenant, you be careful if you think you stand, lest you, like God's people of old, fall. It can happen. It can happen. And so we need to appreciate that. We need to understand that. We need to make our decisions with that fear, that concern, that reality in mind. You say, well, why, why is that, Kevin? Why is that? Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 2. We need to appreciate how easily we can fall. That's one of the lessons we learn from the narrative of Peter's failures. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, we also since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. Now listen to this and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you hear what the inspired writer of Hebrews says? He says that we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, a reference back to that great hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11, all those biblical heroes who did things by faith. And he says, you know what? We, we need to, we're surrounded by these witnesses. We need to be like Jesus. We need to look to the prize. And he said, we need to lay aside every weight and the what? The sin, which what? Which so easily ensnares us. And he's talking to Christian people, folks. He's not talking about people of the world. I mean, certainly it's true for them, but his writing to Christian people saying, the sin that so easily ensnares us, put that aside. We got to look, look to the cross. We got to look to our goal. We're being warned about how difficult it can be. We can fall. We can fall, first of all, because we're in the flesh. We can fall because we are in the flesh. Look over in Matthew chapter 26, verses 40 through 41. Remember we talked about the outset that it appears that Peter and James and John had a closer relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ out of all the 12 apostles because they were pulled aside on three different occasions. This is one of those occasions. Matthew chapter 26 in the Garden of Gethsemane. Look at verses 40 through 41. Matthew chapter 26, verses 40 through 41. Then he, Jesus, came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He called these three individuals aside to be with him in his hour of greatest need. He told him, stay here and watch. Now, last time I checked, you have to be awake to watch. Stay awake, watch, be with me. And they couldn't. Why? They were tired. They fell asleep. Why? Because they're in the flesh. And Jesus makes this profound statement that applies well beyond the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, there's two components of man. There's the spirit and there is the flesh. He says, the spirit is willing. I know these guys had the, my best intentions at heart. I know Peter, John, James and John wanted to be there for me. <laughs> but the flesh is weak. And they allowed the flesh to trump the spirit. But notice what he said, the flesh is weak. Does that have any application to us? Let me ask you this. How long in a Christian's spiritual life, 
from the time he or she is baptized into Christ. How long is that statement that the Lord just said true, that the flesh is weak? Is that, is that true for, for 10 years? Is that true for uh, 20 years? Is that true for 25 years? Uh, is, is it different if you're a preacher? Is it different if you're an elder? Do you reach some level of spiritual awareness, of spiritual growth, where what Jesus just told us, the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak, no longer applies? To be fair, well, that's a trick question. <laughs> Are you in the flesh? Well, let me give you two clues on that. If you're still living and the Lord hadn't come back, you're in the flesh. And what Jesus just said in Matthew 26, 40 applies to you. Whoa, 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 Kevin, but, but, but you got to understand, I'm an elder. I've been vetted according to Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. Are you in the flesh? Yeah, flesh is weak. I'm a preacher of the gospel. You know, all the gospel sermons I preach and how many people have obeyed the gospel after listening to my sermons? Are you in the flesh? Yeah, flesh is weak. Oh, but I'm a mother of so many elders and preachers. And look at these godly people that I've raised. Are you in the flesh? Yeah, flesh is weak. It applies to everybody, folks. Nobody's exempt. The Lord is telling us something here. Be careful. And don't tell me. I mean, you throw that around. I'm a Christian. As if the devil's scared to death of that. We know Christians who've been slain by the devil. You know it. I know it. We've even seen it here. We're in the flesh. And Jesus said the flesh is weak. That's the lesson that we learned. That's one of the reasons why we so easily fall. But, but it's, it's worse than that. It, it would be bad enough if it were just that, that, that. That the flesh is weak and we're all in the flesh. But there's another component to this problem. There's this adversary. This skilled adversary who is great at exploiting and taking advantage of the weakness of the flesh. He knows what he does, and he does it well. And I'm talking about Satan. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. We need to appreciate how easily we can fall. And I think that will change the decisions we make about where we go and the entertainment that we engage in, the books we read, the music we listen to, how we dress, how we spend our time, how we uh, react to one another. If we understand that we're in the flesh, and the flesh is weak, 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. Be sober, be diligent, why? be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Be careful. Be aware. Be on guard. Be on watch. Be alert. Why? Because not only are you in the flesh, not only is that flesh weak, but there is an adversary, there is a spiritual being that is constantly hunting opportunities to exploit your weaknesses. If I were to say to you tonight, once we finish our service, that in the parking lot where your cars are parked, there is a man-eating, hungry lion prowling. I suspect that how you go out to your car will be a little bit different than how you normally do it. I think you're going to be a little more cautious, a little more careful, a little more watchful. And what we don't realize, folks, is that is true not just in the parking lot. That's true in here. It's true in the workplace. It's true in the family. It's true in school. It's true everywhere. The devil is walking about looking for an opportunity to exploit that weak flesh. And let me tell you something about that adversary. You better respect that adversary. You better respect the devil. I ain't talking about respecting the way you respect your grandfather and grandmother. But I'm talking about respecting the way you would if you're swimming in water and there's a great white shark there. You respect that animal. I'm talking about respecting it another way. And that is, what if you, and let me give you an example of a, from one of my cases. We had a case for a retailer where this retailer will allow you to eat and drink on its patio. And... Uh, Somebody took advantage of that. There were some friends. They had a couple kids. They were young, toddlers. And the, one of the, the toddlers was male, a little bit older than the female. And then another friend came up who had a dog. 
And, you know, the adults are talking and they're having fun, enjoy each other's company, not really paying attention to the kids. And the kids are over there. Now, they would probably say playing with the dog. If the dog could talk, it would probably say terrorizing the dog. And they just can't, and we got this on camera. So we saw this. And I had one of my paralegals, he's a big dog person. He said, I'll tell you exactly what happened. He said, it's funny, you can see the male keeps messing with the dog, messing with the dog, messing with the dog. And it's almost like the male kind of senses, I've gone beyond a point. I need to stop messing with this dog. And it kind of walks away. But the problem is little sister didn't get the vibes. And she keeps messing and messing. And finally the dog says, I've had enough. Reaches out and grabs her on the cheek. Now, of course, she's fine. And she looks fine, no, no permanent disfigurement. But that, when I say respect, respect the animal, respect the dog, respect, and that's why I talk about respected adversary, respect the devil. It's not that you hold him in high esteem, it's not that you care a lot for him, but you understand what harm he can do. The same way the shark and the same way the dog can do. Look at Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. I think this will remind us of just how difficult an adversary Satan is. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Ephesians Chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. The Bible says this, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Now listen to this, Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Hmm. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So what does that suggest to you by implication? If we're told that in order for you to withstand the deceptive nature of the devil, in order for you to withstand temptation, you need to put on the armor of God. What does that mean if you don't have the armor of God? You fail every single time. Here's what I'm saying, folks. Preacher goes against the devil by himself. Preacher loses. Elder goes against the devil by himself. Elder loses. Elder's wife goes against the devil by herself. Elder's wife loses. You cannot fight the devil by yourself. Not sheer determination and grit and whatever mental faculties you can bring to bear. You need God. That's what that verse says. Be strong in the armor of God. Put on the armor of God. If you don't, you cannot beat this being. Now, the good thing is, the armor of God is available to us. So there's no reason for us to lose, but do recognize that's a formidable adversary, folks. You, you, now you understand why we need to appreciate how easily it is for us to fall. But we have the resources. We need, to, we need to be prayed up. We need to be studied up. We need to be assembled up. What am I saying? We need to tap into all the things that God has given to us to bolster the spirit so that we keep the flesh in subjection. We need to be prayed up. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. We need to be studied up. Study the word of God. Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman need not to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2, 15. We need to be assembled up. We need to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of son. Hebrews 10, 24, 25. What do these things do? They build the spiritual man. They are tapping into the armor of God so that we can vanquish the devil. Because I'm telling you, when God and the devil get in the fight, God wins every single time. He's never lost and never will. So all we have to do is to tap into that. But the point being is appreciate from the failures of Peter that we can fall. But let me give you a second point that we can learn from Peter's failures. Never, never be ashamed of your relationship with Christ. Never be ashamed with your relationship with Christ. Never be ashamed of that. That is something precious. That is honorable. And yet here is Peter, who is one of the Lord's disciples, one of his apostles, one of the inner circle. And yet, did you notice when, when he's confronted about whether he's associated with Jesus, he, he went really beyond the question. The question really, are you one of his? Are you one of his? Hey, I don't even know the guy. <laughs> did you see how far he went? He just, I, I don't even know him. Why is that? Instinct of self-preservation. What, what is Peter seeing? <laughs> He's seeing the Lord arrested. He's seeing the Lord who, they, they, they didn't come out and have some debate club. They had soldiers. They came out in force. 
and no telling what's going to happen. And now he's associated with that. Uh Uh-uh. He said, I'm not going to be associated with that. We can understand that. Doesn't make it right, but we can understand it. Self-preservation. And and let me tell you something, folks. Have you noticed it's so easy here? Here. It is easy for us to be firm and vocal and bold about our relationship with Jesus Christ. And, And we know, you know, when I say not to be ashamed of the relationship with Christ, you know, I'm also talking about his teaching, right? We do understand that, right? You you can't be ashamed of his teaching. So when we're in our Bible classes and and we're here and we're standing around and we can talk about what Jesus taught about fornication, what Jesus taught about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, what Jesus taught about salvation. Oh, we are strong. What Jesus taught about homosexuality, we're strong about that. You know, John 16, 12 through 15 means that all of the teaching that the Holy Spirit inspired these men to write, all of that is Jesus' teaching, right? Just because it wasn't in the red letters doesn't mean it's not his because he said the Holy Spirit will take up what is mine and declare it to you. So what the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to write about homosexuality, Jesus says, guess where he got that? Me. That's my teaching. So it's easy for us to say that here. Here's my question. When you're the only one, when you're the only Christian and they're having a discussion about homosexuality and somebody's like, man, man these far-right people, man, they, they just don't care about people and want to take away people's rights and just so bigoted and intolerant. And uh, it's a little, bit, a little bit more difficult to be bold in Christ then, isn't it? And somebody said, well, I would never do what Peter did. I would never deny the Lord. Well, maybe you would not do it the way he did it. But, but let me show you another example of denial. John chapter 19, verse 38. John chapter 19, verse 38. Turn over there. John, the 19th chapter, verse 38. One of the lessons we learn from Peter, never be ashamed of our relationship with Christ. John chapter 19, verse 38. John chapter 19, verse 38. The Bible says this, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, listen to this, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. He was a disciple of Jesus. He believed Jesus. He was a follower of Jesus, but you saw what it, secretly. <laughs> I don't want anybody to know about this. Why? Hey, man, these guys, man, they don't like Jesus. And I want to stay in their good favor, right? I, I know you're saying, well, wait a minute, Joseph Arimathea is a great story. Yeah, it's a great story when you go over to Mark 15, 43, because then it says, and coming and taking courage, he asked for the body of the Lord from Pontius Pilate. And folks, that is impressive. But it's even more impressive to me when you see where he comes from because he doesn't really want people to know that he has any relationship with Christ. Why? Because of these Jews. But then, and, and, and think about this for a second. Think about this for a second. You got Peter who's been openly an apostle of Jesus Christ, openly with the Lord, and when he's confronted, I don't know the guy, and then you got Joseph Arimathea, who's trying to be a secret Christian, and yet when it comes down to it, he's willing to stand up and say, I'd like to bury the body of Jesus. And recognize that Peter and Joseph Arimathea are facing the same issue. If you're associated with this man, your life is forfeit. You don't know what's going to happen. And yet Joseph has enough courage to say, I don't care what's going to happen. The man's body needs a decent burial. I'll be the one to do it. Where were the Lord's apostles? Where was his inner circle? They weren't there. But the point I'm making is this. You may not curse and swear, I don't know the man. But how many times have you sat there knowing what the Lord said about the subject that's being talked about, and you didn't say a peep? You didn't dare put your head up, man. Bullets are flying. and I know, I know the truth, but I'm not taking these guys on. People talking about, man, what's, what's this crazy stuff about creation? Man, we all know evolution is true. And, man, you got these fuddy-duddies, don't know anything, troglodytes talking about God creating everything in six days. Now, you're sitting there, you know what the teaching of the Lord is on that, but you don't say anything. You don't say anything. You're just like Joseph Arimathea. Oh, I'm a Christian. I love Christ. I love the Lord, but, but secretly. Somebody, we're talking about homosexuality, and, you know, man, I don't fly low. I just don't want to stir anything up. Talking about fornication. I don't want to stir anything up. That's denying the Lord, folks. <laughs> Let's call it what it is. Look at Matthew 10, 32 through 33. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 33. We need to never be ashamed of our relationship with the Lord. I love the Lord's teaching. It's so direct. It's so straightforward. 
It, it doesn't get much more straightforward and, and much more direct than this. Matthew 10, 32, 33. Matthew 10, 32, 33. Therefore, whoever confesses me before man, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. That's straightforward. <laughs> you confess the Lord, Lord says, I'll confess you on judgment day. You deny the Lord, Lord says, I'll deny you on judgment day. And, and I know a lot of times we'll use this verse, Matthew 10, 32, 33, to talk about the need to confess as a part of the plan of salvation. And I'm not saying that that's an inappropriate application, but it goes so much more beyond that. It's not like you confess Jesus Christ as the Son of God that one time, and then that's it. I'm good. No, you're constantly confessing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And the Lord is saying, if you're the kind of person that you're going to be a Christian secretly, uh, I'm not going to confess you on Judgment Day. If the Lord's not confessing you, guess what? It ain't going to go well for you on Judgment Day. So we need to learn this relationship we have is an honor. It's a we are children of a transcendent God who created everything. Why are we ashamed of that? I mean, you know, it, it, you've got people who, who are children of, of great dignitaries and, and well-known politicians and, and football players and coaches, and, and they just wear it proudly. Oh, yeah, I'm the child of so-and-so. I'm the daughter of so-and-so. And we're the children of God Almighty, and we're trying to be secret about it. Does that make sense? Does that make sense to us? Maybe it does when we're by ourselves. Maybe it does when we don't have fellow Christians around. You remember, you know, Peter was bold when he was with the Lord and the apostles. But he got around those servants and there was no Lord around, or at least not next to him. John didn't appear to be right there. All of a sudden, hey, things got a little shaky. We need to never, never be ashamed of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me give you a third point. The third point is this. We need to take the time to feel the pain of godly sorrow. We need to take the time to feel the pain of godly sorrow. Let me direct you to a couple of verses. Look at, uh, again, Luke 22, verse 62. Luke chapter 22, verse 62. We need to feel, take the time to feel the pain of godly sorrow. Matthew 22, so Peter, verse 62, so Peter went out and wept bitterly. After it says, he remembered what the Lord had said about him denying him three times. Peter spent some time thinking about what he had done. Peter spent some time thinking about the enormity of his betrayal of Jesus. And it got to him, folks. It got, he didn't just weep. That in and of itself is impressive. He wept bitterly. This cut him to the core. What he had done, and when he thought about the enormity of the wrong that he had done, denying his master, denying his friend, denying the very one he had confessed as the Son of God. He thought about it. He spent some time on it. And I think this is an important lesson because I know in my life when I have to come to grips with my spiritual failures, when I have to come to grips with my moral failures, you know what there's a tendency to do? There's a tendency to pivot quickly to grace, forgiveness, and boom, move on. Yeah, I did wrong, but I've got the blood of Jesus. Boom, stop, time out. Kevin, think about what you've just done. Think about the magnitude of what you've done. We wonder why we keep doing the same thing over and over again. We need godly sorrow, folks. I ain't talking about sorry that I got caught. Sorry about the bad consequences. We have that, Matthew 27, 3 through 5. That Judas, he saw what had happened. He was remorseful. But what happened to him? He committed suicide. And we know how that plays out spiritually. But I think we need to, like Peter, take time. Think about what have we done to the Lord. That's, that's a very important point. Sometimes we, when we've done things wrong, we can justify them in our head. Somebody wronged us first, so we're just getting them back. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a girlfriend. Maybe it's a boyfriend. Maybe it's an uncle, cousin, a co-worker. That person did something wrong, and now I'm going to do something wrong to get them back. Now, now from a secular standpoint, there, there, there may be something to be said about that. <laughs> You know, sometimes people are jerks and they deserve something for that jerkiness, so to speak. But, but here, here's the problem with that logic. God didn't do anything wrong. And God's the one who told you what to do in those circumstances. That's what I love about it. You, you can never use, my spouse did thus. My children did thus. 
My, my boss did thus to justify ungodly behavior. But God's sitting over here and saying, well, what did I do? <laughs> God didn't do anything wrong. And, and all sin, we recognize this, right? All sin, when it comes down to it, is really against God. That's the concept we find in Psalm 51, 1 through 4. Turn over there real quick. Psalm 51, 1 through 4. All sin is ultimately against God. And God didn't do anything wrong. Psalm 51, 1 through 4. Psalm 51, 1 through 4. The introductory material says it's a psalm of David after he was confronted about his sin with Bathsheba. That's not inspired, may or may not be true, but it certainly fits. Psalm 51, 1 through 4. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, listen to verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned. And done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, or found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Against you, against you only, I have sinned. Now, assuming this does apply to Bathsheba, he, he's not saying, I mean, at some level, obviously, he did sin against Uriah the Hittite. <laughs> he took his wife and killed the man, okay? So he's not saying that's not true. He did sin against Bathsheba, he took advantage, he abused his power as the king, and took advantage of this lady. And it's sinned against the people. I mean, to take a representative of God's own people and sully the, the name of God by acting. But ultimately, ultimately, all sin is against God. And that's what David is saying. It's all against God. And so we can never justify that, right? We can never justify. And we need to think about this God who brought us into existence, who gave us life, breath, and all things, the one whom we live and breathe and have our being, uh, the one through whom all good gifts come from above, the one who's given us every joyful moment we've ever had, the one who sent his son to die on the cross, the one who has put heaven in front of us and wants us to be saved, wants us to have fellowship. That one has said, and yes, there are some things you need to do with this life. And oh, by the way, they're to your benefit, not only here, but in the life that is to come. And then we violate that. We spit in the face of God. We slap him in the face by doing what we want to do. We need to think about that, folks. That's what we said. It doesn't matter what the sin is. I fail to do something I'm supposed to do. I do something I'm not supposed to do. You spit in the face of God. You slap God. Get serious about it. I'm talking to myself, folks. Because we need to take the time to feel the pain. What's the problem? We don't like it when we think about it, the sinfulness of our conduct. You don't like thinking about that. I don't like thinking about where I failed. I don't think Peter liked thinking about his failure, but he did. And you know what it produced? Repentance. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 12. Godly sorrow produces repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 12. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 12, the Bible says this. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For, listen this, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you? What clearing of yourselves? What indignation? What fear? What vehement desire? What zeal? What vindication? In all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, uh, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. And it appears to be that he's talking about the epistle he wrote, specifically 1 Corinthians 5, where he talks about the man who has his father's wife. But even if that's not true, although, again, I think there's a lot of evidence for that, uh, certainly he makes the point that he had written some things that were pretty harsh, and they produced some sorrow, and he's kind of torn because he's, he's not wanting to make people uncomfortable. He's not wanting to make people sorrowful, but he says, you know what? It actually was a good thing because you had godly sorrow from what I wrote. And you know what that produced? Repentance. And that's what God wants. He wants repentance. And so that's what I'm saying is we need to take the time to feel the pain of godly sorrow. When we sin, we ought to be sorrowful. It ought to hurt us. It ought to bother us. I worry if we get so cavalier that we can just, oh yeah, I sin. All right, forgive me. Okay, grace, boom, let's move on. 
God is not mocked. God's not going to put up with that. There has to be a genuine contrition. Godly sorrow. Not sorrow I got caught. Not sorrow about the consequences. But as the name implies, it's got to be tied to God. The sorrow is God told me to do something and I didn't do it. Or God told me not to do something and I did it. And that bothers me. Because God's done nothing but good for me. As I think about what God means to me. And the relationship and what I've done to God. And that leads hopefully to this this feeling of guilt and remorse and contrition. But, and this is the difference between Peter and uh, Judas, there's the knowledge of the grace of God. That there's something I can do. I can get back in God's good graces. I can get back in the favor of God. Which leads me to my last point. The lesson will be yours. The last point that we learn from Peter's failures is this, that we need to keep on fighting. Keep on fighting and let God finish His work in our lives. Say that again. We need to keep on fighting and let God finish His work in our lives. Look at Luke chapter uh, 22, verses 31 through 34. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. We, we learn from Peter's failures that we need to keep on fighting and let God finish His work in our lives. Luke 21, uh, 22, I'm sorry, 31 through 34. Luke 22, 31 through 34. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, this is Jesus talking to Peter. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you would deny me three times, or deny three times that you know me. Did you notice what the Lord said about Peter's failure? He said something interesting. Here's what he didn't say. He didn't say, you're going to deny me three times, and you know what, Peter, I handpicked you. You're an apostle. You've seen more than anybody else has seen. You're one of the closest ones to me. That's it. I've had enough. If there's anybody that knows better, it's you. That's it. I'm done with you. That's not what the Lord said. In fact, the Lord said, when you have returned to me. Not if. When you have returned for me. I have some work for you to do. I have something for you to do. You're going to strengthen the brethren. You see, he didn't throw Peter out with the garbage. Yes, Peter failed, and Jesus wasn't glossing over that in any shape, fashion, or form. But he said, when you return, I still, my Father and I still have work to do in your life. And I think that's a powerful lesson, folks. Because when we fail, we don't want to be like Judas. We want to understand that when we fail, that God still has work to do in our lives. Do we understand that once we were baptized into Christ, God began working in our lives? That's an incredible thing, isn't it? I mean, think about that God is working with us. We're working together with God to, to bring into existence more and more of His Son, right? Look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. This concept is found uh, all over the Scriptures, but we'll look at a few things before we call it a night. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Philippians, the first chapter, verses 3 through 6. Listen to what Paul says. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always and every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day into now, being confident in this very thing. Listen to this. That he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He who had begun a good work in the lives of these Christians, Paul says, I have every confidence he's going to complete that. And then if you go over to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God can work in our lives. He can make us more like Christ. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 19. Galatians, the fourth chapter and verse 19. Paul says, It's my little children for whom I labor in birth again, listen to this, until, until Christ is formed in you. Wait a minute, Paul, you're talking to Christians. You're talking to baptized believers. They've already Christ. They already have Christ until Christ is formed in you. Yes, he's talking to Christians, 
But the work is not done just when you obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a life devoted to forming Christ more fully in our lives. Every day becoming more and more like Christ. And God is working with us. He works with us through prayer and the Word of God and assembly and the things that we can do. Singing and edifying each other. Encouraging one another. God is working our lives. Here's the point. God will not work in your life if you listen to Satan and what he says. And here's what Satan says. He said it to me. I suspect he said it to you. He says, you failed. You failed and you ain't getting any better. Don't get back up. Don't get back up. Stay down. You don't need this fight. You don't need the struggle. Just give in. That this is a hopeless endeavor. You're never going to be what you think you're going to be. You're never going to be what the preacher said you're supposed to be. You're never going to be what these Bible class teachers say you're going to be. Stay down. In fact, no matter, you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. You're doing the very things you know are wrong. So quit pretending. Just give in, man. Give up this Christianity stuff. You ever heard that voice before? I have. And I try to say, get behind me, Satan. Because I might be bloodied. I might have a gash in my forehead. I may have some teeth knocked out. I may have some broken ribs. I may have a hard time breathing, one eye swollen shut, but I'm getting up off the mat and I'm fighting. And I'm not going to stop fighting because the Lord has some work for me. He's not done with me. And He's not done with you. And so when I say we need to learn from Peter, keep on fighting. The Lord still has work to do in your life. I tell you what, if the Lord had work for a man who denied Him three times, a man who was His own apostle, a man who was closer to him than most of the other apostles. If that man, if God says, I still have work for him, there's hope for me. That's what I love about this. That's what I love about seeing these stories of flawed men overcoming their shortcomings, because I'm a flawed person. But it's not about you and it's not about me. It's about this loving God who through his mercy and his grace and his love, he can do some wonderful things with flawed people. And aren't you so glad that's the case? And so, lessons from Peter's failures. We need to appreciate, appreciate that we can fail, folks. We're, we're flesh. But we also have the Spirit. And God has given us every tool, every resource to be successful. If we are not successful, there's only one person to blame on Judgment Day, and that's ourselves. God went to such great lengths. He gave His only Son on that cross in order that you and I could be successful in doing His will. You can't ask any more of God. He's done His part. Now let's do our part. We need to never, never be ashamed of our relationship with Jesus Christ. What an honor that is. It's an honor for us to have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of the Son of God, to be called a child of the Creator of the universe. That is nothing to be ashamed of. And all of His teaching, we ought to shout from the highest rooftops what the Lord has said, because that is a privilege and that is an honor. And, and we need to, to, to be careful we need to take time when we sin, when we fall short. Let's take time to feel the pain of godly sorrow. Let us whip beater, weep bitterly like Peter did. Spend some, I know it's uncomfortable. We don't like looking at ourselves in that light. But we've got to get to the other side. We don't want to be ones that are just, oh, I'm sorry I got caught. Sorry about the bad consequences. No, we feel, we feel like we, we broke the heart of God. We feel terrible about that. And we're going to do better going forward. And yes, we need to keep on fighting, folks. Keep on fighting because God still has work to do in your lives. Now, let me say this. If you're not a Christian, what I just said is not true. Uh, not now. Because you've got to be made alive before God can start working your life. And you're made alive by obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do I do that? I want to do that. I want God to be working in my life. Well, you've got to hear the gospel message. You've got to believe that message. Based on that belief, you've got to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Based on that belief, you've got to repent of your former way of life. And based on that belief, you have to be baptized into Christ. That's not sprinkling. It's not pouring. Because biblical baptism is immersion. So you're immersed in that water. You contact the blood of Jesus Christ. You say, well, I don't see any blood in that water. By the eyes of faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. And you know that the blood of Jesus cleansed you of all sins. You come up by that water grave of baptism, a new creature in Christ. And you have the best, the most glorious, the most wonderful life you can have. That is to seek and to save that which is lost. I can say that because Luke 19.10 says, that's why the Son of Man came. 
to seek and save that which is lost. Whatever brought Jesus down from heaven has to be the most important thing that can ever be done on this side of the grave. And you can be a part of that, working alongside with God, fellow laborers with God in His field, working in that harvest, trying to get as many people saved as possible. And 1 Timothy 4.16, take heed unto yourself and unto the doctrine, for in doing so you will save both yourself and those who hear you. So we want to be careful as we're out in the fields, we're trying to get as many saved souls as possible. Be careful how you live. Be careful how you walk. Be careful how you talk. Be careful how you dress. Why? Because you don't want to muddy the waters for any soul. It is very hard. What do we do? We judge the message by the messenger. Hard to see a clear message when it comes from a messenger with a muddy life. So clear up the life. That's what he tells. He said, teach right and live right, then you'll be successful and a lot more folks will be saved. And that's, that's what we're calling you to do. More importantly, God is calling you to do that. That's what life is all about, is to do the will of the Father. And it gives you a satisfaction. It gives you a joy that is just, it's beyond words. I cannot get, do it justice with, with ver, semantics and verbal language. I, I just can't do it. But I can tell you I feel it. Every Christian here can tell you I feel it. They feel it. And here's the thing. We know at the end of this, however short, however long it's going to be, at the end of this, we have a home in heaven. That's the point. We've got to see what's spiritual about. Don't get caught up in this stuff here. Yes, there are things here that are difficult. Yes, there are trials. Yes, there are tribulations. Yes, there's aging. Yes, there's sickness. Yes, there's all this stuff. I understand that. I'm not making light of that stuff. But that's not what it's all about, folks. It's all about heaven. It's all about heaven. And I don't care. You know, life is a gift. It doesn't matter how long or short it is. If you've got 10 years of life, you better praise God for that 10 years. You get 20, 30. It doesn't matter. Whatever you've got. I remember my father when he was talking about the loss of my mother, he said, you know, God gave us 40-something years of marriage. Is the glass half empty or half full? It's half full. We, we don't criticize God for His gift. If He chooses to give one person 50 years and somebody else 70 years, that's God's sovereign right. I was uh, preaching somewhere and we were talking about some of these things. The brother said, don't you criticize God for doing good. Amen. <laughs> don't criticize God for doing good. Whatever He gives us, all we can say is, thank you, God. Whatever you gave me, I appreciate it. And what he gives, he gives us is the opportunity to be with him for all eternity. There's not a greater gift that's ever been given. If anybody's subject to that invitation, we ask you to come forward as we stand and sing.